You are listening to The Hublic Sphere, a podcast created by early career researchers at the Trinity Longroom Hub. Our ethos is to interject the discussions we have in academia into the public sphere, asking what arts and humanities research can contribute to broader public knowledge. For season two, we discuss one general theme, connection. Hello, my name is Lorraine McAvoy and I'm a PhD student in the Department of History, where my research considers the recuperation of children in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. I'm also a member of the history team at the Museum of Childhood Ireland, Ireland's first island-wide, diaspora, global and social history museum of childhood. In this episode of The Hublic Sphere, I speak to Magellan McAllister, founder of the Museum of Childhood and head of its Youth Voices team, and Professor Mary O'Dowd, Professor Emeritus at Queen's University Belfast, who heads up the history team. As the museum pursues the establishment of a physical space, its various voluntary teams have worked on travelling exhibits, community initiatives and projects. I hope you enjoy our discussion about the museum's work, its place in society and how we can define, represent and respect the many versions of Irish childhood, both past and present. Thank you both, as we begin, for joining me here today. I'm absolutely delighted to have you, Magella and Mary, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the Museum of Childhood Ireland. My first question is for Magella, and it could be an easy question and it could be a terrible question, but it's where does the idea for the Museum of Childhood come from? Oh, okay. That could be, (laughs) this could be a very long question. Okay. So let me start at the beginning of where this all started. And I suppose there are a couple of events that led up to, well, the 30 year incubation period for the Museum of Childhood Ireland in my head. But I think probably one of the first things was the the death of Anne Lovett and her baby son in Longford. So that was one of them. I think another sort of event that happened was the loss of the wonderful Hicks and Sons of Dublin Dollhouse to the Lego Foundation in Denmark. Beautiful doll's house that was made for Gwendolyn, who was Sir Neville Wilkinson's daughter. So that sort of sense of loss of childhood items that were made in Ireland. And I think then institutional history and a lack of awareness in some of my students around history. At one point reading Dickens, it transpired that the class I was facilitating thought child chimney sweeps were just a London thing, that Ireland didn't have chimney sweeps. And, you know, I was able to then share Professor James Kelly of DCU's insightful abstract on chimney sweeps, climbing boys and child employment in Ireland, 1775 to 1875 with them. And it was really eye opening. And it also led then to other discussions around present day child labour. And I think 30 years ago, my husband and I were in Edinburgh with our uh, eldest son, who was just a very young child at the time. And we were very tired with (laughs) crying child all night and we were very fractious with each other. And we stumbled on the Edinburgh Museum of Childhood. And I mean, our son promptly fell asleep. So it was just the two of us in the Edinburgh Museum of Childhood, which was mostly displays. But the conversation that it facilitated between us both was incredibly important to us you know even in hindsight even when we look back on that moment we learned so much about each other and and I suppose you know that deeper understanding was really important so I think the power of stories and being able to share stories is also um, a little bit of background to the formation of the Museum of Childhood Ireland. That's absolutely brilliant and I get this real sense of community and connection and family. To follow up then with Mary and to ask you I know 
you're an active academic. You have a marvellous track record of being involved with the public that I think most of us early career researchers would aspire to. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you know, these early movements like the foundation of the Women's History Association in Ireland. And I just wonder what drew you to the Museum of Childhood Ireland? Um, well, I got involved because of Magella. Magella is a very persistent person. <laughs> and I think she asked me three or four times before I actually <laughs> said yes. And I said yes because she was so persistent. And, and this whole uh, idea of the museum, it would be nowhere without Magella. It's really her dream and her energy and persistence that has led to us being where we are now, where we're actively negotiating and discussing possible buildings for the museum. And it is all due to Magella. So that was that was my main motivation in joining. I'm also I was also interested in it because I used to teach a course in Queens called Love, Life and Death, which went from infancy and childbirth in Britain and Ireland from about the Middle Age period up to the the 18th century, from childbirth through early childhood, teenage years, and then into adulthood, marriage and work, and then finally death. So I got very interested in the history of childhood doing teaching that course and and realised how much there is, particularly in American and English historiography, American and English historians are way ahead of us, really, in terms of studying the history of childhood, because I was teaching it with two of my English colleagues, and they had loads of material to draw on from English history writing. And they wanted, they were very keen, because we're based in in Queens, to include Ireland. And I was desperately trying to find material that they could use as well as I could use. But there wasn't that much we could use, particularly for that early period. So we had to rely mainly on documents and original sources to find some material. And then I began from that to write a couple of articles on the history of childhood in Ireland. So I just developed as an interest through teaching, really. I think what you said there last really speaks to Magella's first point, too, about lack and loss and the need to preserve and find, especially for topics like the history of childhood, where there's there wouldn't be so much of a wealth of material as with other types of history. We see that, I think, in academic history, this availability of sources driving the narrative. So this need to find and preserve with children's history, and I think also women's history and the history of other... Yeah, it's, I think it's um, slightly harder than the history of women, though, because at least when you're dealing with women, unless you're dealing with sort of teenage, well, even with teenage girls, with children, it's very hard to find a child's voice in the archive because they're not obviously literate, most of them. You will occasionally find collections of letters of children to their parents. There's a lovely collection of letters from Eleanor Fitzgerald, who was first Duchess of Leinster. She had 16 children who lived, survived in, at least into some part of their childhood. And she was down in County Kildare, and they were all staying in a house in Black Rock, which was almost a, like a children's home with all the children in it. And their tutor with this Scottish man, William Ogilvy, with whom their mother subsequently had an affair and then married. But there's lovely letters that she insisted that they write to her. And often the tutor would put in a few lines at the end. But, but, but they're in the National Library. There must be 20 or 30 of those letters. But it's rare enough that you'll find even a collection of letters like that. You might find the odd one. So you could say with women's history in the past, so it's not the case 
I think, anymore, that women were ignored in the archive, like the historians just didn't see them. With children, you know, it is a case sometimes that they're just not there. Because, and the same with children in institutional care. You'll find the government reports, as in the mother and baby home report, that it's all through official documents or it's through the people who ran the institution making reports. But it's extremely difficult to find the actual voices at the time of the children or the young girls. Often, you know, I mean, our definition of childhood goes up to late teens. So some of the girls became pregnant and ended up in those homes. We're really, in many ways, children themselves. But you very rarely get their voices coming through the archive. You obviously get memories and subsequent accounts of what happened. But, but again, the voice of the child, it's extremely difficult to, to identify. Absolutely. That difficulty of getting the voice of the child in the present moment. It seems it's always mediated either by adults or Mm -hmm. by time. You mentioned this point of how we define childhood, and that's something I wanted to come on to and to ask you both your thoughts on. So the Museum of Childhood Ireland, how do we define childhood in Ireland? What are the parameters of that? So I suppose defining the parameters of childhood. So broadly speaking, we see childhood as the age span ranging from birth to adolescent. And I suppose what is an Irish childhood? Our primary focus is childhood as as it has happened, as it exists on the island of Ireland and amongst the diaspora. But not forgetting that we're part of a wider world and that we have links to, to childhood beyond Ireland too. Yeah, childhood can vary enormously in terms of definitions from historians. Some would stop at adolescence. Others would stop with girls when they get married and that before they're married, they're still children. That doesn't quite work for some countries. Like, for example, I did a collection of essays there a couple of years ago on girlhood. And we had people from Bangladesh and the woman from Bangladesh was also working about writing about women or girls in India. And we had a woman from uh, Nigeria working on the history of girls and women in Nigeria. And there, there is a, there's a legal definition of adulthood, which is maybe 18 or 21. But yet in both those countries, you could get married very young, like nine or 10 years of age. But yet, are you a child at that stage? Uh, or are, do you become an adult on marriage? In medieval times, you became an adult on marriage. Historians, mostly at least in the Western world, and I think increasingly elsewhere, would go infancy to the age of seven, which would sort of fit in with what Magella is talking about, that in terms of being able to work on the farm and make a contribution to the family economy, children are not physically strong enough if they're doing physical labour to do that before the age of seven. And then you can recognise in, in some documents that children from the age of seven to preteens are beginning to work either as an apprenticeship or on the farm, just doing sort of light tasks, maybe collecting firewood or fetching maybe some water for them well. So you get a lot of accidents of children around fireplaces and wells in the medieval period. And then from from about 10 or 11 up to 16 would be the next cutoff. And that's the time when they are beginning to to seriously go to work up until, you know, I suppose the mid 20th century, uh, even in Ireland, girls and boys would have gone to work um, 13, 14, 15. In Belfast, girls would have started working in the mills 
when they were about 12 years of age. So that's a crucial time when they're transitioning from childhood to adulthood. And from 16 onwards then, when the cutoff part is, um, are you an adult when you're 16? You could serve in the army. You could serve in the local militias in Ireland from 16 onwards until you were 60. And it's a bit, I don't know what the age is today in Ukraine. Certainly I noticed the cutoff age was 60, but for a long time in Ireland and England, it was 16. You started at 16 and then the physical thing that you were physically strong enough to take up arms at that stage and therefore were seen as being an adulthood. But then when school comes in and university and then the vote, it was 21 for a long time and that was another cutoff spot. So it varies particularly at that upper end when you think childhood ends and adulthood begins. Yeah. And, and even at the moment with, within the Youth Voices team. So some of our some of our team members are now going to be 19. They're going out of age 18. And because we had sort of set the the, the age for for that team at sort of 13 to 18 years of age. I mean, now there's a debate going on is, you know, can it be extended to 21? So so it, it is a little bit fluid. So we, we would say, broadly speaking, up to 18 years of age. But our, our Youth Voices team are really important in what they do. So that is a, an internal debate going on among them at the moment, if we can extend it so that they can stay included as part of that, or do we develop a, a, a new sort of young adult team? So yeah, watch the space. <laughs> Wonderful. And I definitely want to come back to you in a few minutes on the brilliant work going on in the Youth Voices team. But just to follow up on that then, because we have the age parameters for childhood, but then we also have the range of experiences of childhood. Siobhan Callahan in last season of The Public Sphere, she did this wonderful episode on rereading childhood book and nostalgia. And one of the things that came up is that not every childhood is a happy experience. There is a range of experiences often troubling, difficult and traumatic. And how do you incorporate, not the divide, but the spectrum of experiences of childhood in Ireland and Irish childhoods into the museum, especially in terms of creating a safe space for families as well, finding that balance? Yeah, really good question. The Museum of Childhood, we adopt a wide angle approach to childhood that is both island-wide and international in scope. And because there's no singular narrative that captures childhood experiences in Ireland, we want to present an inclusive and holistic view of historical and contemporary childhood that will inspire critical reflection and stimulate important and timely conversations about childhood in all its complex forms. The idea that all children should be seen and heard and it is very difficult. You think a museum of childhood, we have families coming, we have families coming who have experienced varied childhoods. And, you know, within that, Mary and I were part of a conversation about how we organise the difficult and the sensitive histories around childhood in a museum that won't impact on children, won't make it upsetting for children within the museum, won't make it upsetting for people who have experienced childhood that, that hasn't been happy. And the idea that it, it will be completely accessible, but that you won't stumble across it. You, you will make a deliberate decision to view that history through on a mezzanine level or through another door. I think, Mary, would you like to continue? Yeah, I mean, I there's two different issues there. 
In terms of nostalgia, I think it has a place because obviously it's the thing that might get adults into a childhood museum. And I think on the website, there's an awful lot of people remembering their childhood and having good memories of it and having therefore an interest in in the history of childhood. So it's good for getting people engaged, but it just couldn't be all that we do in the museum because it gives, as you said, it gives a very comfortable view of the history of childhood. And obviously not everybody had a happy childhood. So in terms of the nostalgia, what I would like is to use some of the collection to present visual things like dolls or toys that will delight children of all backgrounds and that they will be interested in seeing them, but also to try and use them to tell different stories that might appeal to, to the adults around those um, objects. But yes, there's another, obviously there's a different childhood to be told. Travellers would be one story of childhood that would be very different from many of the other mainstream, if you like, stories of children. And obviously the new Irish will have different memories of childhood, speaking two languages, speaking three languages, are remembering coming to Ireland as children, moving into a completely different culture. So that would be I think a very interesting story to tell if we can if we can tell it. But then there is obviously the big stain on the history of childhood in Ireland, which is institutional care and the state's funding of institutional care and all of the terrible stories that have come out of those institutions about the way in which children were treated. And we would like to tell that story very much, but we would also like to see the museum perhaps, as a, as a way of commemorating many of the children who spent some years in those uh, institutions and who lived later in life to tell us finally and to break the silence about what happened to them in those institutions. So we would like to see Museum of Childhood as some way in which Irish society can commemorate and remember the, the experiences of those Women, But obviously, too, for children who grew up on the men and women who are now adults visiting that museum are indeed children just encountering all of that very bleak history could be very upsetting. So, as Magella is saying, our plan is to have it slightly removed from other exhibitions and to, to let people know where it is and they can choose if they want to bring their children into it or if they themselves want to, uh, to look at it. And, and also as well, not to forget that, you know, the experiences of children growing up in direct provision in Ireland is also yes, um, in, incredibly important. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's always for us, it's always, it's always the history, but it's also what is happening right now. Thank you so much, both of you, for such a marvellous answer to that question. There's so much to unpack there. And I love this idea of the layers of experience. And I think you've spoken, Magella, before about the museum as somewhere you don't just go once on your holidays, but somewhere you can visit. And I love this idea that maybe people can grow with the museum and experience it differently as they age. Another thing you've kind of really mentioned here is just the openness and the care with which the museum is treating the stories of Irish childhood and the range of experiences. Mary told us at the start about how she was wrangled in by Magella's able arms and I just want to ask you about all of the others who have fallen into your clutches and all of the other teams as well as the history team that you've drawn in and if you could give us kind of 
the range of groups and experience that you've kind of brought together? Okay, so I should say, first of all, that I never, ever wanted to start a Museum of Childhood Ireland. I always waited for it to happen. I always thought that somebody out there, you know, who would be perfect to do this would actually do it. And in that 30 years where every year I, you know, I wish, I wish we had this and it's, and it hadn't happened. So I suppose, you know, by the time I was ready to begin and I was ready to commit to it, I, I had spent a lot of time thinking about it. And then there were people that, you know, I really admired. Obviously, Mary O'Dowd uh, was one of the people. So that was my, my hit list um, of people that I really wanted to get involved in the museum. People who are experts in their field. And I think my idea was, I'm not an expert, I'm a generalist across a lot of areas. And out of respect for children and childhood, the idea that we could get people who were absolutely at the top of their field, who had the expertise and had the knowledge so that what we were going to offer wasn't, you know, and, and I like, you know, I like toy museums, I have nothing against toy museums, but I was always a little disappointed with toy museums that if you went along and you saw something that you didn't know, you know, there were questions that I wanted answered, like who owned it and why and where. I had so many other questions that could have simply been answered. So having Mary and the whole history team involved is incredible. We have an education team. It's headed up by Dr. Matthew Fogarty, and they do wonderful work there. Rebecca Jackson, who heads up the children's rights team. Aoife Osiron, who is in charge of children's literature. We're really lucky in the expertise that we have drawn together, all voluntary. Everybody does this in their spare time. And I think we've just been incredibly, incredibly lucky to be able to draw all of these people together. I, I, I feel very privileged to know the people that I've come to know in the museum. I'm not going to cry, but I'm quite emotional about it. I think it's, I wasn't qualified to do this, but they have made it an incredibly easy task for me. That persistence that everybody firmly believes that Ireland needs a museum of childhood in this sort of way. As you said, the layering of it, somewhere where children can go. We didn't want it in the middle of the countryside. We wanted it in a city. We wanted it to be really accessible. We fought really hard to find a building that could be made completely accessible by having a lift to, to all the floors, both for people who will come to the museum and also for people to work there. So that sort of inclusive and diverse experience of childhood and you know, diverse audience could be could be accommodated there. So an absolutely marvellous team. I'm kind of a bit speechless about them. We should also say we have um, people who are now experts in governance and finance to try and raise funds for the, the actual building as opposed to a website. Marketing and social media too. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're all experts in their field and, and, you know, really keen to get this off the ground in terms of a physical building. Yeah. And, and the support from from the public as well has been has been amazing. The last time I think we looked at our Facebook page, there were thirty three thousand followers. So that's you know <laughs> that is that is quite mm. something. It it really is growing, and the interest around it because that is what's going to make this people being interested in the subject. Yeah, that's something that's really struck me: the scope and ambition, but also the response that has really matched it from communities and I love reading the Facebook posts and the stories that people post and how they engage with it and that's something I also wanted to ask you about is the various mediums through which the museum are connecting with people and especially in these times you know the last two years with COVID have been so tough but how the museum have managed to connect with people and the different projects you've run throughout the pandemic. 
Mary might actually like to talk. I mean, our history team won the Heritage Council Award, the County Heritage Council Award for the history project that they did last year. And it, it was it was just wonderful. So Mary might even like just to tell about that. Yeah, I mean, we did a we did a webinar because we couldn't do it uh, in person. So, well, we did a discussion among historians about the history of childhood from Mesolithic period up to the 18th century with four different historians just presenting their research. It was nice because I think all of it was based on original research and, and new research of the period. So, and it was, it was great that everybody was very enthusiastic about doing it. And, you know, for me, I mean, they were all interesting. The, one of the ones that I think was most memorable was Eileen Murphy, who is a professor of archaeology in uh, Queen's University, Belfast. And they've been looking at graves going back to at least the medieval period um, and earlier and identifying graves of, of children. And she showed us some of the graves. Uh, one of them was a very poignant one of a, obviously a woman who died in childbirth. And you could still see the child inside the the woman who hadn't given birth before she died. And there was also one of the things that I remember too was um, the grave of a child in which there were bits of broken pottery put into the grave. And in the past, our archaeologists would perhaps have identified that as, you know, for some religious reason or for some ritual attached to this broken pottery. And I just said, well, it could be a lot simpler than that. It could just be a mother burying her child and putting in something that the child could play with in the afterlife, if you like. Um, and then she showed us a photograph, an early photograph of children, I think, in the west of Ireland um, in the late 19th century, playing with bits of broken pottery. And it was just a reminder that nowadays children play with toys, particularly in the Western world. Manufactured toys are actually quite a late development. Toy shops, say in Dublin, really only begin in the 18th century. And it's really only in the 19th and 20th century that you get toys as a, a normal part of childhood. And before that, children would play with anything that they could find around the farm or around the household. So broken bits of pottery, you know, maybe a bit of a an old teapot or a handle could be something that a child could use. So her grave struck a, a chord with me and just childhood can be the same right through. Children will entertain themselves with whatever they can find. Sometimes you do actually, if you look at um, refugee sites, you know, newsreels of refugee sites, you do see children playing with bits and pieces that they found or find around the, uh, the camp if they don't have a toy. They play with something else. Yeah, e even in Dublin City in sort of the 1940s, I, I remember seeing photographs, 1940s and 50s, and actually even into the 60s, of children playing what they called Chaney, C-H-A-N-E-Y. Oh, yeah, it's a Wexford thing. Uh, okay, okay. And yeah. it was... And, and it was broken pieces of pottery and they yeah. used to make shops they would have shops selling these things and things yeah. too so there there certainly is um but yeah so i mean that that was amazing to win that award we also got shortlisted quite surprisingly we weren't expecting it at all but somebody obviously had put us forward for an award and we got shortlisted to the final six so ourselves the glucksman um the warhol museum 
and the Glazer Museum in Montana, the Reich Museum in Amsterdam and the National Gallery of Singapore and us, the final six for a Kids in Museums Award, which is very prestigious. And we contacted to say, look, you know, we are a museum project. We're online and in pop-up form. We don't have a physical museum yet. And they said it was due to the quality of our programming that we had been included. So that was, was a very nice award to win. That was in 2020. Yeah, they certainly helped morale, which is, which is important too. I have to ask you, Magella, about the Lakela project. Oh, Project 2020 together, Lakela. Yeah, again, that was it, 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 it connected you know, much more widely than we ever imagined. But I think we started to hear uh, sort of the, the news sort of came out of China about the pandemic. And I think really before I really paid attention to it, it had reached Italy. And I was looking at the plight, I, one particular image of a child on a balcony thanking the Red Cross, you know, uh, who were below in the street. And it, it really, it really caught me. That's almost that same afternoon, my sister came to the house with my nieces and all us adults, we were all sort of chatting, chatting away about, about what might happen, you know, imagining what the pandemic might actually bring. And one niece was out playing completely oblivious to it, not listening at all. And I looked and my my, one of my nieces was behind the couch having a good old listen to, to everybody. And she reminded me of me because it's what I spent most of my childhood doing. I was always listening to adult conversation and hearing things that I shouldn't have. And consequently, I, I was a worrier. And I, I thought there are children all over the world who are listening and they're listening to adult conversation. And, you know, most of the focus is on what will we as adults do? And we started Project 2020 together, Lakela, as a way of, I suppose it was a mental health resource primarily for children to be able to say what it was they were feeling. And I suppose in ways it's an archive so we can look back on it as well. But it was primarily um, a way of enabling children to be heard in the whole pan pandemic. And, you know, again, it's like with all childhood, the experiences were very wide. But yeah, so that was Project 2020 together, Lakela, And it went to Kathmandu and to Italy and to um, Chicago and really all around the world and we organized I mean obviously most you know places were closed and people were at home but we organized some really nice exhibitions um, on the railings at the People's Museum in Limerick where, where we actually keep a selection of the uh, collection from, from the Museum of Childhood Ireland they have been uh, very obliging to us we have a, a room there as a gallery we displayed the exhibition of the printed works of the children outside on the railings in Limerick and a lot of people were able to to see it that way and we also had the most beautiful exhibition at Killarney House and Gardens in 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 the garden there in the park um, and we planted it the flower beds were bare it was winter time so uh, attached the the corrie board imprinted images um, from the children's work and we planted it in the flower beds like they were just growing up through it and it was very well received and I think for adults it was it was a, a way to reflect and to hear the voices of the children th their own voice their own work and for other children it was a way for them to help them to express themselves too because sometimes they saw their reaction perhaps in another child's work um, or you know or echoes of it that was that was project 2020. Really brilliant projects and I suppose it's a testament to the museum's commitment to children in the present. And you mentioned youth mental health there, Magella, and just a question that you've kind of both touched on throughout our conversation. And it's 
what do you see as the role of a museum like this in society and in a community? We're going to have to balance, or we we keep trying to balance, being a space that children will want to come back to. Because very often, the only time people have been in a museum is when they've been there as children or on a school visit, and they don't particularly want to go back. Whereas we hope this museum would be different because there will be a lot of spaces where children can play a lot of things for them to physically do, to fund the museum. You know, we have the ideas about spaces for, say, Lego parties or birthday parties to link in with with the museum. So it won't be like, you know, the school visit, (laughs) we hope, to the museum where children are sort of forced into looking at things that they're not that interested in. So we hope we will be able to to uh, to please the children and that it will be a, an enjoyable experience. But we want to balance that also with saying something about the role of children in Irish society. And also, to, as I've said earlier, to sort of, you know, be a, be a, a permanent reminder of how Irish society didn't always treat its children very well. And indeed, Magellan's mentioned direct provision that children are children who are homeless, living in hotel rooms or whatever. Or traveler um, children. Traveler children that, you know, they're not treated very well. Um, and so we want to be able to say something about that as well and to be a site where these ideas are raised and questioned. To make children as well as adults yeah. also aware that not... Every child has a happy childhood. At a local level, you know, we just hope that it will attract families and, you know, just in in sheer practical terms, that it will have a tourist appeal and that there will be a financial element to it in terms of being sustainable. So, yeah, we just to make children and adults think about children, children's history, children's rights in the past, but also children's rights in the present. Um, and maybe ask where was the T-shirt they have on bought or where was the toy made and where the children involved might be another way of looking at it as well. I, I completely agree with that, Mary. You know, it, it, it's this idea that, you know, it's kind of like we, we, we poke a subject and, and see what happens from it. Mm the happier or more nostalgic sort of items. But we had, uh, when we had the Crawley doll on display there, we, we, we heard all the good stories, but we also heard some pretty horrible stories around Crawley dolls too. And I think that the possibilities and the, the potential within the museum for, for facilitating all of those, I also love, I, I think I said it before, I always see this as layering. So, you know, when you come into the museum as a child, there will be things there for you to do. And then there'll be information that you can access as a child. And then it's the idea that you can layer and layer and layer right up to the deepest level of research. So for somebody who is really interested in a subject, the, the, the pointers will be there so that you'll be able to access that deeper history around things. We are a community that, you know, something shouldn't just be for an adult or just be for a child, that we can make these spaces like our cities or like our towns. We should be able to make these spaces accessible to everybody. Thank you so much. I'd love to keep you both talking all night. It's been such a wonderful discussion. And I just I want to ask one final question of you both. And it's what excites you the most in the future of the Museum of Childhood Ireland? What would excite me personally would be that it is a space that would develop the history of childhood and children in Ireland. That we will obviously be a site for children, we'll be a site for the general 
a visitor who just wants to spend an afternoon in the museum. But we will also have, hopefully, either interns or visiting fellows who will be able to do serious research around some of the objects that we have in the museum, but also around the history of childhood in general in Ireland, and that we might accumulate research around the, uh, the history of children in Ireland. Sarah Ann Buckley, who is a member of the history group, she has this wonderful idea of maybe in time that we'd be able to put together a big anthology of history of Irish childhood. She's thinking of something along the lines of the, the history of the, the Great Famine or the history of the Irish Revolution that University College Cork published. That's, you know, personally, that would be what, I, what would excite me most about it. But obviously, all of the other things will come first. Yeah, well, I, I think for me, that really excites me, that that underlines everything. The museum, if it was just a collection of objects without the research, wouldn't be important and it wouldn't be respectful. For me, I think it's it's coalescence of everything coming together, all things childhood related. And I think that that sends out a very powerful message about where we have come to in Ireland around respect of children and childhood. The Irish phrase, you know, that, that unity and strength. So the idea that sort of everything childhood can come together and will be really powerful in that. And I think for the future, I think that will be a really good place to start. So I think the museum is a starting point. I do think of it as a revolution. That's the starting point. The establishment of, of this museum le leads to that in the future, that, that we have something of real significance really respectful and really significant for childhood in Ireland. Brilliant. Thank you. And I, I'm sure I speak for everyone listening in saying we really look forward to seeing where the museum goes and everything that it does. And thank you both again so much for joining us this evening. If you've listened to this or any other episode of the Public Sphere podcast, we'd love to know what you think and would appreciate if you could visit our webpage at bit.ly forward slash public sphere and answer a few questions that'll really make a difference to how we plan for future episodes. The Public Sphere is a podcast produced by early career researchers at the Trinity Long Room Hub. For more information on this podcast episode, follow our Twitter account at Hubbock Sphere, where you will be directed to our show notes and website. The second season of The Hubbock Sphere is produced by Connor Brennan, Orla Darling, Lisa Doyle, Courtney Helen Gryle, Tom Hedley, Lorraine McAvoy and Alan O'Neill. With many thanks for our jingle to Angus O'Loughlin.